Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Turtle. And I'm Annie. And this is a podcast where we bring indigenous worldviews and western worldviews into conversations about science and Indian stuff. And... Around the world? Yeah, and sometimes we talk about stuff internationally. (laughs) Other times we talk about the U.S. But today we are talking about decolonization, which is inherently international in scope. Yep. But we try to focus it because it's such a huge concept that we struggled ourselves just doing research, trying to figure out what direction we wanted to take this. So on today, we just start simple. We define the word decolonize or decolonization, decolonizing. And then we start talking about a little bit of the history and where it comes from. But we try to stay away from the history because Mm -hmm. it's such a... Large topic. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) It's a, it's an abyss. You can fall into really yeah. quick. So we we tried to do our best to stay focused, and and we bring up a lot of different literature and some books, like Linda Smith's book, Decolonizing Methodologies, which we will link in the show notes and highly recommend. It's one of the seminal pieces of work, and it has a lot in it, and it's not that long either. So you should definitely pick it up if you get some time to read something. And mm-hmm. uh, reading is good. <laughs> <laughs> we're just dorks because we read all the time for grad school mm, yeah i know i i tend to i'm kind of a book hoarder if i find good books especially if they smell good mm-hmm. i love to go and I'll, I'll just sit there and i'll smell my books at my desk and <laughs> i'm kind of a weirdo but if if it doesn't smell good i have a really hard time <laughs> reading the book so to all you authors out there, to you novelists, make sure your paper's smelly. <laughs> oh, what else do we talk about? We talk about our own issues on decolonization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very person. It's a very personal thing. Of mm-hmm. course, we're indigenous, and we're living in the modern world in a previously um, a, a, a nation that was previously a colony. So we kind of talk about that too. That. There are differences among the colonization, decolonization movements, and there's been different waves of decolonization all the way for hundreds of years. So it's it was a fun episode, and I know we kind of strayed a little bit, but I feel like we stayed pretty yeah. on topic for the, for the <laughs> most, most part. Most part, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so go ahead and sit back and enjoy the episode. Hey guys, so today we are going to to have our science fact, but I have a group text with my sisters, and so I had a challenge for them to kind of figure out a new name, and I think we all decided on Indigifax. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the best, op- uh, the best option <laughs> yeah. they came up with. That I, I, I mean, was there was some golden ones in there, but I think Indigifax. I was digging the indigena, or Indigifax. Digging- Indigifax. Digging in Digifacts. So, but I guess the irony of it is it won't always be indigenous. In re- right. <laughs> but, uh, but we're indigenous. So, so in that way. It's technically it's in, indigenous. Yeah. Indigifact. <laughs> um, so I kind of came across my, my Indigifact while I was driving back from Denver this weekend and I was listening to a podcast and. They were talking about uh, um, oceans and, and kind of how screwed up the oceans are right now. And it was kind of heartbreaking. And one of the facts that 
they talked about was um, what kind of pollutants end up in oceans. Mm. And I can think of a, yeah, a pretty you, big list. You can think of, like, in my number one in my head is always straws. That's why uh, I try not to use straws yeah, anymore. Plastic. Plastic. And then... Then they told me the number one fact, and I was like, <clears throat> the number one item that is found within oceans. And I was like, that that's not the case. <laughs> mm-hmm. But can you guess? Because I haven't told you this yet. Paint. No. I don't know. <laughs> uh, diapers. No. It's cigarette butts. Oh, you know, that's not surprising. Yeah, it's that's not. Kinda... Yeah. Dang, that's not good, though. Right? Okay, so. But I know that cigarette butts are full of all sorts of nasties. Exactly. So I'm on the the Cigarette Butt Pollution Project website. Oh, wow. They got a project. Yeah, they got a project. Well, that's good to hear. It's kind of that big of a Do they have a list of what kind of toxins that would be leaching into the ocean from that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm curious if uh, fish are swallowing cigarette butts or getting them stuck in their fins or or not their fins, their breathing apparatus, the gills. Do you remember what that, isn't that called a plastron? Or wait, no, that's a turtle thing. I think that might be called a plastron too, the the that bony structure on fish gills. You know what I'm talking about? Sharks oh, don't have them. Okay, that's yeah, why yeah. sharks have to swim and um or they don't have to swim, but they have to keep moving fresh water over their gills. Um and the way they do it is staying in motion. But other fishes they have that plastron so they can pump water yeah. across their gills. Oh, man, I don't I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'll, uh, maybe I'll correct that in the show notes or something. But I guess that maybe uh-huh. we'll do three Indigifacts. <laughs> That's another one. Um, Plastrons. So it doesn't really say what it does to animals, but it does kind of state that uh, the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention reported a study of butt consumption by children in Rhode Island in 1996. <laughs> butt consumption. Butt consumption. Everything is like I'm currently The little on... boy inside me can't help but laugh at yeah. that. Yeah. I'm, I'm on their butt, um, what is it, facts. Butt facts. Butt facts right now. <laughs> nice. I bet they were totally, they did that on purpose. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. no, you have to for sure. Because, I mean, kids would totally laugh at that. <laughs> <laughs> and it says that one third of the 146 children who consumed cigarette butts had signs and symptoms of nicotine poisoning. Hmm. What are the signs and symptoms? I wonder. I bet racing heart, <laughs> nausea. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm sure there's plenty. Vomiting. Uh, oh, man. Theoretically. I love, I love theories. 200 cigarette butts would kill an adult human being if it were consumed. Wow. Over, like, in, at once? I don't know. Dang. That's, that seems like a lot of cigarette butts. That'd be a big bowl. Yeah, so that's, I figure if you're trying to eat 200 cigarette seems butts. Seems like you'd be like, vomiting yeah, by then. way before then. So I went on this website because I wanted to figure out how many got tossed because mm-hmm. you, you can see different websites, but I, I think I found this one the best. And so they say that there's 376 billion cigarettes that were consumed in the U.S. and 98% of them are filtered. Hmm. So then you have 5.5 trillion cigarettes that are consumed globally every year. And of those, 4.95 trillion are filters. So, the the positive somewhere in the environmental world. Um, so, and they break it down. So, it's about to get real mathy for half a second. Oh, yeah. I, I like me some numbers. <laughs> so, if you do the weight and volume of discarded, discarded filters, so that's 20 filters for one pack, 
So that's 0.12 ounces or 12 milliliters. So if you have 10,000 filters, that's one year's consumption at 20 cigarettes a day for one smoker. That's 3.75 pounds. It's five liters. So five liters of cigarette butts. Yeah. Per person per year. Yep. In the in the United States. Uh yeah. Mm. So then if you have one million filters, that's three hundred seventy five pounds. So is that per capita, like for all the across the entire population? I don't Man. Oh, uh, see, you can't, you can't bring out statistics. I'm going to ask these well, questions. Well, this is the statistics that are on their website. They're, they're slacking. They're slacking. They should have that clarified. And I'm still, I haven't finished the Because what the, I'm curious about is like how that the weight and how it's being offset by non-smokers. Because if it's just for smokers, I'm curious. Oh, okay. Well, but what if it's, mean? I'm wondering like if it's, well, if, if it's only smokers or, I mean, it would make sense, I guess, that they would only. Well, yeah, have because non-smokers smokers. aren't going to throw cigarettes, but um, the environment. Yeah, I guess that that's kind of my bad for assuming that uh, they messed up their statistics. <laughs> so, if you have 375 pounds of filters, um, therefore, 104, okay, so 141 million pounds of filters... That's 188 million liters were dumped into the U.S. environment in 2005. So this was even like 12 years ago, like 13 years ago. Hmm. So who knows how many more yeah, is done now. I don't necessarily know if this, like smoking has gone down. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't really observed that trend necessarily. And if anything, I kind of observed it either mm-hmm. stay steady or maybe slightly rise a bit. But also, I mean, I'm surrounded by a certain number of people, so... Yeah, and I mean, I think you have higher populations now than you did mm. then, and... Yeah. I think. Interesting. I mean, you never know. So, that's a great reason to stop smoking. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... Yeah. It, number one pollutant. Dang. Wow, yeah, that... Yeah, I guess I wouldn't have thought about that, but it totally makes sense now that you bring it up. I'm going to tell my mom that. Yeah, I mean, I just yeah, think that's something that you you don't... Oh man, cigarette butts make up thirty four percent of total litter collected in California. How much? Thirty. Thirty four percent, up to thirty four percent. That's my favorite number. Or no, actually, that's my second favorite number. My favorite number is thirteen, but my second favorite number is thirty four. So dang, interesting. Thanks, California. You uh, right? Got it just right today. Discarded cigarette butts have been linked to wildfires, which have resulted in the destruction of oh, yeah. wildlife vegetation. You know, I think that's the first thing I thought started wildfires <laughs> with cigarettes yeah because I, I think maybe some Smokey the bear commercial right. or something <laughs> back in the 80s or back then they had the cartoons do you ever remember the Smokey the bear cartoon no i don't oh yeah i remember that i haven't seen that i think maybe that was more like early 90s all right i was a baby huh i must not have known then wow so for all anybody listening if you are a smoker uh not to guilt trip you or anything but <laughs> right <laughs> Quit polluting the ocean. <laughs> no, I, I play my part too. I'm trying to like decrease plastic consumption, and that's really yeah, hard. It is, and it's, it's just such like a overall life change that mm-hmm. I struggle with a lot. And little steps, that's gonna take. Yeah, and with that being said, can anyone guess where our planet was 230 million years ago? The Milky Way. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because that is a perfect. Uh, 
transition, right? Yeah, that, exactly. Those are totally totally <laughs> related concepts. People were not smoking 280 million years ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's true. Well, we we there's strong evidence for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that people weren't smoking. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, that's how long it takes our planet, or I mean, not just our planet, but our entire solar system, including our sun, for to travel around the entire Milky Way galaxy. Man, two hundred thirty million years. So that's such a long time. Yeah. So that was the last time we were in this same position in the Milky Way. Um, if you were to think about it, like, mm-hmm. so our Earth orbits around the sun, and the last time we were in this position was one year ago, 365 65 days. So if you think of our sun kind of like the Earth mm-hmm. in the center of the galaxy as the sun, our sun takes 230 million years to go around once. Man. So there were dinosaurs around the last time we were in the spot. What period was that? That, uh, you know what? I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure that it was the Cretaceous period. Okay. So that's like kind of early dinosaurs, mm-hmm. actually. We're around, um, maybe not the earliest, but it was before T-Rex. Before T-Rex, all those yeah. dinosaurs we Yeah, love before right a now. lot of the popular ones from Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Jurassic yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, T-Rex, I don't think he, that was Jurassic either. I think that was... Um, Wasn't it like after Yeah. Because I think it was Cretaceous, Jurassic, uh, I can't remember Hold the other, the next to... one. Man, I've tried so hard to figure out all those geologic ages and all these different epics, and I uh, still, I still struggle with that. Those timelines. It's weird to think millions of years into the past mm-hmm. like that to actually try to comprehend those numbers. Exactly. Because I mean, it really is crazy, and um, and I'm reading here from the NASA.gov site. and it's a pretty reliable source. I mean, they really they've been one of the few organizations in the world. That can actually afford to go into space. So, um, but um, there's definitely a lot of conspiracy theories <laughs> about NASA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Space and Force now. Only. <laughs> actually, we already got a Space Force. That's the Air Force, right? Because I'm pretty sure they have a space program in the Air Force, and they're yeah. intimately linked with NASA. I know a lot of Air Force pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, or I, wait, let me rephrase that. I'm, a lot of the NASA astronauts were yeah. previous test pilots and. Uh, mm-hmm. Air Force. I, and Air Force. I feel like that is definitely where you kind of go. Yeah, because that's like the ultimate yeah. flying, right? <laughs> to go but into space. I don't think that's exactly Trump's idea of Space Force. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's probably thinking like Star Wars and Star Trek style, <laughs> or maybe not Star Trek because they were like a space. They were peaceful. They're peaceful. Yeah, they were a peaceful Space Force. <laughs> and so, yeah, 230 million years ago, we had dinosaurs walking around, and to I guess put that a little bit that into perspective. Um, that like our earth, so we're moving ever at an average velocity of 828,000 kilometers per hour. And that includes the direction of our planet and our sun going around the Milky Way galaxy. So just think about that 828,000 kilometers per hour. I can't even, I can't yeah, even I don't, I don't think even, about that. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> me either i have a hard time imagining a second <laughs> i know and then there's the speed of light three hundred thousand yeah. kilometers per second yeah i can which is know. also equally i mean i think that can go around the planet like 20 something times right which is insane and to think that i believe and then our galaxy its diameter is a hundred thousand light years Dang. which is i mean that and that's kind of 
it's crazy to to mm-hmm. try and wrap my mind around how they actually figure all this out. Right. And they they use light, telescopes, and math. That's basically, and then things that pe- really smart people figured out over the last thousand years or so. <laughs> I mean, it took them hundreds of years just to figure out basic things that we use now to like, calculate all these crazy different things in space. Um. Oh my gosh, what was that one movie with the with the ladies um, that worked for NASA? And they were like the mathematicians that came up with um, hidden figures. Oh my gosh! If you haven't seen that movie, have you seen that mm-hmm. movie? You no. need to watch it. It's a it's about like these Oops. these really strong like African American women who pretty much put like landed the first aircraft on the moon, spaceship on the moon. Oh really? Yeah, like they helped with like the cord like the projection and like all the math behind that it's a really oh, good movie so it's a were true they story a part, they were part of mission control yeah like oh, it like okay. that movie is really good and i stress you watch it yeah i love those seen. movies yeah like apollo 13 with tom mm-hmm. hanks is one of my favorite movies of all time yeah and like they're just like really funny and and kind of goes through like they're that's cool yeah it, it's cool and I that's like a, one movie. of those very seldomly told stories mm-hmm. is women in nasa mm-hmm. Or women in the Air Force. Especially back then, and especially mm-hmm. being African-American. Yeah. Hmm. It's insane. It's a good... It's good. Cool. I think I've watched like 20 is it on, at this point. Is it on Netflix or um, anywhere like that? I don't think so. Have you might Google have to rent it. it. Yeah, yeah, you might have to... You you know how to do it. Yeah, I can find stuff. <laughs> okay, so yeah, those episode, are our science yeah. facts. Our, uh, I mean, facts. indigifacts. We're Indigenous factoids <laughs> of the day. <laughs> <clears throat> so let's episode time now let's get serious decolonization time (laughs) it's time to decolonize our hearts and minds and uh i think that it really all starts with having conversations Mm -hmm. about really tough things that oftentimes bring a lot of pain i think there's a lot of trauma and pain Mm -hmm. that comes up when whenever we start talking about decolonizing but also it's such a huge concept we can literally talk about like half a millennia of history of mm-hmm. half a different dozen European countries and hundreds of different nations around the planet. Yep. So, and we're, we're not experts. As we said before, we're, <laughs> we're grad not. students and we're learning about a lot of this stuff as we go, mm-hmm. but we've learned some pretty good research skills, I would say. And yeah. we've learned to take things with a grain of salt. So, we figured a lot of these things we learn are important to share and to share resources and information is, I think, a vital step that a lot of isn't necessarily encouraged that much among scientists. And I think it's kind of starting to go back there, mm-hmm. but it's kind of sort of optional still. It's not really like mandatory that we become good communicators of our science, which I think is, I mean, it's hard to, it's almost pointless if we can't communicate it and mm-hmm. it doesn't help society or our community in some way that's just i mean that's my opinion but i think a lot of scientists uh, maybe not i'm assuming i'm making that huge mistake i make a lot which is to think that other people think the way i do yeah and uh that's almost never true i've noticed which is not i mean that's not a bad thing that's actually a really good thing it's a it's a mistake that gets me in trouble sometimes i know i I think I, i feel you i definitely have a hard time Hearing other people's points and, and not realizing that my point isn't always the 
the right point mm-hmm. and, yeah. and in someone else's contextual life that, yeah. that is different. So I think that means we're going to focus a lot on what decolonizing and indigenous communities. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to focus, try yeah. to, or we're going to try yeah, to we're gonna, focus. We're going to try to focus in, in a smaller section of it. Cause I think that while we did our research for this episode, I learned a whole lot more about decolonization in like the 1700s and how the United States in itself is kind of like an example of decolonization. And so hmm. we can go way, yeah. way into history and all this stuff. And I'm, we were both not historians <laughs> and I'm, yeah. And this is not the Indian history show either. <laughs> yeah. So we figure we'll try to stick it. I keep it, keep it as sciencey as we can, yeah. but this is such an important topic in Indian country that we couldn't avoid it. And exactly. um, a lot of our science keeps coming back to how can mm-hmm. we decolonize our research Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's kind of been our issue since we first got into grad school. Not an mm-hmm. issue, but I think our first challenge. It's a huge challenge. challenge yeah. yeah. You know, of, of like, decol- how do you decolonize your research process? And yeah, so we've we've definitely focused a lot on it. And so I think that leads us to kind of the 1990s, really, of when. Yeah. So there's been numerous waves yeah. of decolonization. And just from the bit of research that I've done in graduate school, I mean, and it's not just grad school. I did some under, in undergraduate school also, but it's, you see, things get more intense in graduate school. <laughs> just a so, little bit. <laughs> I delved into it a lot deeper than I had ever before. And then especially for this episode, mm-hmm. I really started to fo- try to focus my intention on like, what what the hell is decolonization anyway? And from my perspective, there's two different kinds, but I'm like, I'm not an expert and I don't study this for a living, but the way I see it is that there's colonial nations that were previously a part of a colonial empire, Mm -hmm. which is a part of the whole era that encompassed enlightenment as well as the age of sail and the industrial revolution all the way up into imperialism of the 19th century. So like Annie just said, we could really get deep in the history. So we're going to try to avoid the history as much Mm -hmm. as possible and just clarify what, what is decolonization itself. And I like to break things down into chunks and so what I did is I looked at that that very first part of the word D. What what does that actually mean, D? And the Latin roots of it really basically just mean down from or um, off of uh, or down to the bottom totally. So there's kind of that to- totality to it that it's the kind of the lowest part of something. So um, in the modern term, but it was also used in Latin times back when they did speak Latin that. It's not or to do the opposite of or undo. And so it's, it was used in a very similar way. But uh, the very basic, ba- most basic roots of it is kind of talking about that high, almost like a hierarchy that there's a higher order of something and then it goes down to the bottom. And that's so we're almost like getting rid of that hierarchy of colonization. So it's like undoing that. Mm-hmm. And then and then I looked into what do, what is a colony? Like, where did that word come from? And. There's this cool etymology website that I'll link in the show notes. But in ancient Rome, where where they where Latin kind of first came on the scene and got real popular when they started spreading it around the known world at that time, the word colonia meant settled land or farm, also a landed estate. And it also, there's also a word uh, colonus, which is husbandman or tenant farmer. And this is really interesting because it, it's pointing directly to one of the most fundamental aspects of decolonizing in my eyes. And also a lot of the experts that I read, they talk about land. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that kind of makes sense because you have this idea of, oh, what is it? The doctrine of discovery is, is that when you are manifest destiny? What, what is that when you feel like because you're there, you're entitled to that land, right? So it's this idea of you being there, you understanding it and like you claiming that land is yours. Hmm. So, I mean, the idea oh, of yeah. colonialism and land being intertwined is mm-hmm. makes sense. And uh cannot help but get into the history i mean yeah <laughs> but i mean it's really important so and uh, our, our our apologies for any of the uh, background noise we're kind of in a new location trying to get our mics adjusted a little bit but but yeah anyways going back to that idea of like where did these kind of come from why i mean why did they think it was okay to do that mm-hmm. basically because the pope told him it was okay and wrote it up in some real fancy legal language that they call papal bulls now. And these are declarations from the Pope that are put in, into written do- documents and mm-hmm. written in a legal, very legalistic way. And oftentimes these popes were lawyer, lawyers also. And some of them were the best lawyers of the day. So uh, I'll let you draw your own conclusions about what that <laughs> means. Anyways, the papal bulls were really the foundation of things like Manifest Destiny the doctrine of discovery. So that worldview, I mean, religion, it's hard to get any deeper than religion. So to have a religious justification for something is about as strong as it gets. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that came out of the crusades. And so there's a really, really long history here. And, um, but really, yeah, it comes back to land and how we perceive land. Mm -hmm. And there's a major difference between ownership and family family yeah really yeah. re- kind of that kinship mm-hmm. versus ownership relationality because both are relationships in my view they're just different kinds mm-hmm. of relationships yeah i mean because you can have a capitalistic view and still understand relationships of mm-hmm. of land yeah. and, and how cycles work you're it's still ownership and you're looking at it as a way to make money yeah and i think that's it's hard to overstress that point that difference between ownership and family or kinship mm-hmm. Is, but because I know we've talked about it before on previous episodes, but I mean it, that's really what it's coming down to is that that, that there's been, been this kind of clash between those very fundamental different worldviews and this idea of decolonization to break just kind of building off of those really basic definitions that I just presented. So we're, what we're really undoing is that we're undoing that process that happened to us mm-hmm. over centuries for some people. And for some people, it's a little newer. I mean, maybe a century and a half. Um, and But really, the kind of the, the height of imperialism during the 19th century is when it really kind of re- reached its, its uh, high point or its apex. And then during the 20th century mm-hmm. is when major decolonization Probably, probably the second wave. I would maybe say, just off yeah. of my my own layman's understanding of it, the first wave was kind of the age of revolutions with France. I mean, it didn't start with France, but the French Revolution was mm-hmm. a really a focal point of what was going on. And I mean, what happened in Ireland, what happened in the United States, in South America, that was like the first wave of independence movements. But it, but it's it, definitely decolonizing. Yeah. And that's when you were talking about it being like a colonial settlement within a. Yeah, yeah, and so now, and then there was the second wave, which was kind of after the age of imperialism, where the like in places like India or countries in Africa and Southeast Asia, they started really gaining their independence during the early and mid twentieth century, 
And I mean, Gandhi is probably one of the most well-known examples of an independence movement from a colonial power like that. And that's a decolonization movement. And I would say, so before Gandhi, they were typically pretty violent. Uh, Not all of them were violent. Not all of them resulted in like mass bloodshed, but Mm -hmm. that was definitely what happened with the United States decolonization movement, which we now call the American Revolution or the War of Independence, the War for American Independence. There's a lot of different terms I've come across over the years. Uh, so to, I, to bring that back into a, a modern context, what we're doing is we're undoing this process of what uh, like colonize, which is really comes back to people. Like Annie was saying, these settlers or colonists come and establish a colony in this place. Mm-hmm which has everything to do with land, the soil, the water, and all this different stuff. And as indigenous people, we're so, our cultures and our languages and our our worldviews and our spirituality are so intimately tied to all those things, those aspects of nature, that to decolonize any aspect of our society, we has to be, that land, I mean, it has to be there, it has Mm -hmm. to be a part of it. So... With that being said, you were um, there was something that uh, you said it a minute ago. It had to, exactly to do with the land. It was one of the uh, the articles you were reading to me. Oh, this my oh, man! I didn't look out. Um, where they talked about the the mantras of yeah. the resurgence of Indian yeah. indigenous movements. Okay, yeah. So this is an article from. Um, oh, it was that that author. That we both were reading and we didn't even realize we were reading the same dude. Yeah, it was the yeah. same dude. Um, oh my gosh, and I'm going to butcher it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think I probably got it wrong too. He's fine, I'm fine. Ty Talk? Ty? Ty? Yeah, his last name is a lot Alfred. easier. Yeah, Alfred. Yeah, yeah. Let me try it. Alfred. Um, Let's start calling him that. Yeah. Ty, 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 Ake? Yeah. Maybe Ty, Ake? Yeah. Well, we apologize, Mr. Alfred, for butchering your first name, but he's a PhD, he got his PhD, and he's at Cornell University. Very, cool. Yeah, We're, very prestigious. Yeah, prestigious yeah, close and, to us. Yeah, close to us, and uh, also have very good friends that go there, and it's a really cool university. Yeah. Ithaca's a cool town. I don't um, want to go back to Ithaca. It's a beautiful um, place. Um, so, yeah, you... Have, yeah, so this is by... You had some cool, uh, like, what is it, like, kind of, like yeah. a list of mantras yeah. they call mantras so it's, it's alfred and corn tassel and then, so it's called being indigenous and it's reinsurgence against contemporary colonialism and so um they give these mantras of resurgent indigenous movements and so there's one two three four five of them and the the very first one which is land is life and um and so he says that our people must reconnect with the terrain and the geography of their indigenous heritage if they are to comprehend the teachings and values of the ancestors and if they are to able to draw strength and sustenance that is independent of colonial power and which is regenerative of an authentic autonomous indigenous existence. Hmm. And then the other one is language is power. Um, freedom is the other side of fear. Um, decolonize your diet. Uh-huh. That's yeah. a really interesting one. Freedom is other. Yeah. Uh, so he. I could agree with that. Yeah. So they say that it's our people must transcend the controlling power of the many and varied fears that colonial powers use to dominate and manipulate us into com- 
complacency in cooperation with its authorities. The way to do this is to confront our fears head-on through spirituality-grounded action. Contention and direct movement at the source of our fears is the only way to break the chains that bind us to our colonial existence. Hmm. Yeah, this guy. This guy's good. It sounds like he may be one of the experts on decolonizing mm-hmm. and uh, maybe colonial, right. colonialism. But I really don't know. I don't know who the uh, major experts in this field are. I mostly just kind of... What I do is I look for some, I, I do searches and then I look for the oldest stuff I can find and I look, f- I use etymology and try to, basically I try to understand where the word comes from in the language of English and then kind of follow the different like lines of thought and different things I find. And I usually use Google, Google Scholar and an online database for scholarly articles that's mm-hmm. tied to an institution of some kind and most often, I mean, I've been going to school for the last 10 years, yeah. so I I have access to that stuff. <clears throat> but there are other sources online where you can get access for, like, trial periods and get some really cool resources. But really, Google Scholar is pretty dang powerful, and you can mm-hmm. find some awesome peer-reviewed literature on there. And just be careful how you're searching and make sure you're finding, like, quality peer-reviewed stuff from reputable journals because not all... Scientific literature is equal, as we have come to learn, for sure. And so the last mantra is, change happens one warrior at a time. And Mm. I think that that definitely, especially where we're from, you know, because we have the warrior movement Mm -hmm. with with the Arley basketball team. and, And I think that that just, like, really stuck out to me because what these young high school boys are doing. And, uh, so yeah, those are his mantras, and we read a lot, but, uh... I know for sure that uh, land has always been something that even grad school has was one of the first things that were mentioned to us that they had to decolonize. And the one way to do that was with, with land. Yeah. And specifically relation, mm-hmm. land relations, restoring relationships. And that's really the essence of biocultural restoration is restoring land relations. Mm-hmm. And... I know Neil and I talked about this a lot, how really that comes down to what you do on a day-to-day, season-by-season, year-to-year basis. And it takes time. It takes lots of time to be able to cultivate uh, those relationships Mm -hmm. because you you can't just switch overnight and start gardening, for example, and think that you're going to all of a sudden be a healthy eater and a healthy person. Yeah. It takes time. It's a part of habit development and it's a part of working through your own addictions because everybody's addicted to something. We all have some kind of addiction and it's not a bad thing. It's just behavioral. It can be a behavioral addiction or it could be a biochemical addiction. We just, uh, that's kind of just how people are. That's a human thing. I think we get that whole idea of being a slave to habit and there's a certain, anyway, never mind. I'm getting, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was about to start talking about addiction and I mean, like I could, well, that's a whole, uh, another thing. I think that like brings up a good point because we were just talking this morning about our our ACES workshop or our session that we're going to do. And uh, we we talk a lot about the two-eyed seeing framework. And I think that two-eyed seeing framework and decolonization at this point kind of go together hmm. because yeah. it's really looking at a, your indigenous worldview, but then also understanding a non-indigenous worldview. Mm-hmm. 
That reminds me of something in The Art of War from Sun Tzu. And, well, I mean, they, they call him Sun Tzu, but nobody really knows if uh, who wrote this book. It's actually, it's older than the Bible. I mean, the New Testament, anyway. Mm-hmm. And what one of the sayings, and I, I think a lot of people have heard this saying more than other sayings from it, is that if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the results of 100 battles. And there's different ways to phrase it. But that really does, I mean, not to paint the settlers as enemies because yeah. they're not they're allies but the the fundamental truth that he's speaking at there is that we have to understand our oppressors mm-hmm. we have to understand western science and these western systems exactly. to be able to undo them to be mm-hmm. able to de anything so decolonizing i think is definitely like you said we got to see through both eyes mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways i think that's our the strength of our program is it's kind of developing a way to maybe teach people how to do that mm-hmm. And it's really tough. It is really, really tough trying to trying to do both. Yeah, the um, I wanted to read something else from this Mr. Alfred or uh, Dr. Alfred. He, yeah, he. Okay, here it is. And again, it has to do with land, but I really just love the phrasing here. He said, "Without a return of land to our nations and a comprehensive financial support for Indigenous youth to reclaim, rename, and reoccupy their s- homelands." To do what they need to do to ensure their own and coming generations' survival as real people, reconciliation is just reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And brackets around the jest, I added that. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's a really powerful statement. I mean, rec- there's a lot of talk, especially in Canada, about reconciliation. I mean, I don't think the U.S. government really gives that much yeah. really shit about reconciliation, especially with the administration the way it is now. Yeah, that's I mean, a whole other story. Again, politics right. aside, what. <laughs> He, again, he's really talking about returning these our relations to the land. And I love that he brought up specifically the indigenous youth. Mm-hmm. And I know young people in our community are struggling big time. And, I mean, my kids are struggling. Pretty much everybody I know has people in their family where these young people are just, it's really tough. So decolonizing, it's it's a matter of survival right now. It is. And I think that we had talked about this earlier. I don't think we mentioned it now, but... Um, decolonization is not like a a set thing. It's a process that you have mm. to be continual. And I think that we can't talk about decolonization without talking about Linda Smith. Oh, yeah. I was just looking for. I was just looking. <laughs> I grabbed the wrong book. I grabbed Margaret Kovac, Kovac's book, which is also a great book, by the way. But yeah, she specifically states that in this mm-hmm. book. And although she she's definitely not the first academic to write about this she was one of the very first and it's definitely the first over in that part of the world definitely but like we said it's got hundreds of years of history behind it and i guess the word decolonize has been around since Mm -hmm. the early 20th century but again uh, we'll probably just do a whole episode on (laughs) the history (laughs) of decolonization but with that being said she, uh, I'm going to just read a passage from page 116 of her book. It's in this section here. Um, yeah, and I really love this phrase too, indigenous research or an in- agenda for indigenous research. And on the next page, there's an awesome diagram here that is is really a, a visual representation of the ethos and the philosophy behind this indigenous research agenda. And for them, they used kind of concentric circles representing the waves and how they, waves and ocean are a really big part of their worldview. 
And although I don't think it's directly usable here, the principles, and there, there's definitely, there's a few universals in here also, mm -hmm. some cultural universals that we can borrow and think about in our own way. But even the specifics of this diagram, which I don't know, I think it'd be, actually be really cool to just post this up since it's one of the seminal yeah. diagrams that everybody well, not everybody but a lot of people cite this well i feel like if, work. if you are an, an indigenous and academic research you yeah. know this model so i'll put a picture in the show notes so that way mm -hmm. people can just see right away what uh this maori woman how she put together all these things in a visual way and at the very very center of it is self-determination mm -hmm. so in Which a lot of ways that's kind of the end, end goal, goal. Mm -hmm. but like you said decolonization itself is not the goal it's a process and she talks about, and it's a part of the four directions and the other three are healing mobilization and transformation but she said that in a quote the four directions named here decolonization healing transformation and mobilization represent processes they are not goals or ends in themselves they are processes with connect which connect, inform, and clarify the tensions between the local, the regional, and the global. They are processes which can be incorporated into practices and methodologies, end quote. And that's something I know I, I really, I wasn't really thinking about it that much as a, specifically as a process. I kept, I guess maybe because I wasn't thinking about it that much at all, really. It was, I kind of just bought into the catchphrase of decolonization and assumed <laughs> what it meant instead of really Breaking actually challenging what it, what it, really is and what it not just what it means but what it is yeah and how it actually manifests in the world the process aspect of it that gets that reminds me of language too like language is not it can't that's not really a goal really but it also is a process and unless we go back to languages also that's it's gonna be really difficult to because and then mm -hmm. yeah and that's so tied to land also and i think that. Also, in, in this book that uh, I'm currently reading, and it's Indigenous Story Work, Educating the Heart, Mind, Body, and Spirit, and it's by Joanne Archibald, Coastal Salish, and so I, I tend to be drawn towards more Salish literature. And um, so she talks about the importance of um, stories and, and, you know, being Indigenous people. We have oral traditions and oral histories. And one thing that I've one, – one sentence that I'm going to read – um, is this it says if one comes to understand and appreciate the power of a particular knowledge then one must be ready to teach and share it respectfully and responsibly to others in order for this knowledge and its power to continue and i think that that sentence goes hand in hand with land because a lot of our as indigenous people our language is tied to land and if you're not, and I think this is where that model comes in because the end goal is self-determination and that's yourself knowing your language, knowing your specific land, where, where these stories are from. And I think it's just really important. And that's why I love the fact that self-determination is in the center mm -hmm. and that in order to be self-determined, you have to follow these kind of colonized ways to to realize how to separate your indigenous worldview and your non-indigenous worldview mm -hmm. and it has to be on our own terms mm -hmm. that's why that's why i also i really like that phrase indigenous research agenda and that uh, that self-determination really mm -hmm. is the center of it so the and and yeah 
I can't help but think of so many different things when I start thinking of decolonize because it really is across the board mm-hmm. at every level. I mean, um, and I think speaking to that whole idea of that it's a, a process and not a goal, I know that for me in my own life, ceremony has been a huge part of decolonizing my own world. Mm-hmm. And I know that ceremony is just as much a process as it is or really, it is, that's, that's the majority of it, in, from my opinion, is a doing uh-huh. of something because we know what that doing brings. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, that's just like with, like, harvesting, too. Like, you can read about harvesting all you want until you do it and you're out in the field and you're mm-hmm. you're looking, when we talked about this earlier, but you're looking at plants that should be there that are no longer there due to over-harvesting or climate change or kind of whatever environmental issue that's facing, social issue, that... I think we don't really think about processes in an indigenous worldview, but you look at processes a lot in a non-indigenous worldview. Yeah, processes. That's such a (laughs) fancy way to say the stuff you do. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, basically. um, But, I mean, I guess process might be more specific to the mechanics Mm -hmm. of what you do versus just what you actually do. Mm So how do we look at these this from a more mechanical, I guess, more hard sciencey type of way? Like what specifically can we do to begin decolonizing in our own lives or in our communities? I know that we I mean we already touched on it, returning to land relations. So I mean wherever you are, just finding out who are the original caretakers at that mm-hmm. place and learning from them. Or just going yeah. out and learning from the land itself because there's a lot of value in just sitting by a creek somewhere. Yeah. And soaking it in. And it speaks to everybody in different ways. Uh-huh. And that's very difficult to learn that way unless it's paired with the people that have been learning that way in other, and in other ways from that place for thousands, if not ten thousand, tens of thousands of years. Uh-huh. So that's I think that's important is doing, going out and being a part of the landscape and actually cultivating these physical, spatial and um, temporal relationships with the plants and the rocks and the water but plant matching that up with finding out who is responsible for that place mm-hmm. and i think that's kind of brings me to this really good the last sentence of this alfred and corn tassel article mm-hmm. um that's what they said it's like we do not need to wait for the colonizers to provide us with money or to validate our vision of a free future we only need to start to use our indigenous language to frame our thoughts, the ethical the ethical framework of our philosophies to make decisions, and to use our laws and institutions to govern ourselves. Mm, yeah, and that, I think may, this may not be so present in other places where they're, I mean, we've got such a unique relationship here as domestic sovereign nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we kind of can create our own laws. But there's a lot of red tape to that. Exactly. How do you see yourself and your own self-sovereignty? Hmm. I, you know, I really do believe that cultural identity is mm-hmm. very important. And I found this really amazing research about that, that how connected our individual identity is to the cultural identity mm-hmm. and how clear we are about that cultural identity mm-hmm. It plays into, well, like, and it's a mostly psychological, not necessarily physical, but I mean, psychological, physical are so <laughs> connected. But that psychological well-being, things like this can be determined by that cultural clarity. Things like your self-esteem mm-hmm. are highly influenced by these things. Exactly. 
So I know that just getting out there, and I think you said this in our um, Being Indigenous in the Modern World episode, that don't be afraid to go out and learn from mm -hmm. people. Um, even if they may not be the most widely respected or widely known cultural leader, everybody has something to teach us. And who, you never know what you'll learn from people. Yeah, exactly. I feel like we don't give other tribal members enough credit for what they're doing and I what they're learning. Yeah, we could definitely decolonize that mm -hmm. too. I think that we are in a unique situation where we have this kind of uh, communal knowledge where it's not just one person that has the knowledge, but us as a community, as CSKT members, and if you even go farther back to when we weren't a CS, when we weren't part of a nation, when it was Bitterroot Salish, you can go farther than back to that. You have this knowledge that has been from time immemorial that you have that you just have to, and I know you say this a lot, that you have to just listen and you have to just mm -hmm. do it. Yeah, and I know at Ceremony, we're coming together to create medicine. And a lot of that has to, it's the people that are doing it. Mm -hmm. So when we come together for ceremonies or we come together for harvest time, we're creating medicine together. And that's a form of knowledge. Exactly. So I know that's one of the many first steps we can begin taking is just go back to our ceremonies. And and it's really tough to do ceremonies without songs and mm -hmm. without language. So I know language is a huge part of that. And that reminds me of this paper. It's a really, really cool paper out of Australia. And, man, it's very eye-opening, some of the things they're talking about in here, because they compare a lot of what they're doing to what hap what they see happen here in the United States. But anyways, they're talking about decolonizing indigenous archaeology, which is a really fascinating concept to me. But this quote here is about language, but not necessarily, I mean, not necessarily how I'm saying it, like going, relearning our languages and bring them back to the land and to the ceremonies and stuff, but more specific to the language of the colonizers and how we use that, mm -hmm. saying that uh, this, this is their quote, it goes, our very identity is determined by others through the use of language. Language has been used to rationalize Western superiority, justify their actions, make legal the illegal, control, educate, determine social order and position, and to convert untruth into truth. Hmm. That's some. That's a. That's a borderline poetic, <laughs> <clears throat> and it's very, very powerful and so it true. Is. It's hard yeah. to, to deny anything that he that this person is saying, and really. Well, I think that's kind of what we're doing, right? We're, yeah. we're challenging this term decolonize. And in a lot of ways, the underlying con connotation is that col colonizing or colonialism is a thing of the past, mm -hmm. which is it's totally not. Well, that's like when you look at history books or school books and a lot of indigenous knowledge is considered past tense, mm -hmm. where it makes it seem like there are no longer indigenous people in America. Yeah. Well, if anybody out there listening thinks that, we're still here. We're still here. <laughs> yep. And we're doing podcasts. We got, and, we're doing podcasts now. Yeah. And I, I love that because I have a quote that's kind of similar to that. And it's, so decolonization is not just a type of research endeavor centered on empowering indigenous peoples in academia or elsewhere. It also requires those in power to dislodge their power and privilege. Hmm. Oh, yeah. And... Mm -hmm. pfft, 
I don't know how many times that's happened in history. <laughs> it hasn't, but I feel but, like uh, we're kind of, there's a kind of like a movement. I think we talked about this earlier about Standing Rock and really how Standing Rock kind of brought indigenous issues to a national level and mm-hmm, has kind yeah. of kept it there to where people are still talking about it. But before that, what, Obama was the first president to bring up Native American minorities in his speeches. So, I mean, that that was like, what, 2008 when he was elected? Was he the first to I think, actually to like like in his political was his, speeches? Was it his platform, a part of his running platform? Yeah. Well, you know when and they, I, I guess I'm specifically thinking like what, what you mean by that? Well, so like when they are talking about minority groups, so they'll say African Americans, Asian Americans, yeah. they would never talk about Native Americans. Uh-huh. So well, we're not really a minority. Obama, but I mean, because if we're a minority, then that put puts us as a racial group. And we're, if we're a racial group, we're not sovereign nations. Exactly. So that's dangerous. Like, But at the same time, we do need recognition as a part of a mm-hmm. – in, in the United States. Like, yeah. That, I mean, that's just, just like saying – We more, more, rec- yeah. more, more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not more and more. We need more but... of everything. <laughs> <laughs> not more per capita, though. No, no more per caps. I don't necessarily think that's doing anybody much good. Probably not. Um, but I think that's that money a, could th- we go could talk towards. About, that's, that could be an episode. <laughs> yeah. What could per caps go towards? Because not, not. I never got per caps because I'm not enrolled here. Yeah. So, so I'm well, I mean, that's what I, that's, I think that's another misconception is every indigenous tribe gets per cap. Oh, yeah. I was poor as hell growing up. We didn't get. Yeah. Our, no, that's a lie. We got a hundred bucks for school clothes. At the beginning of every year, yeah. So see, we that we they hooked us up a little bit. So it's different, and like, and I think that's what is so what I love about United States Indigenous tribes because there's five hundred and sixty-four, and and that's just recognized federally <laughs> Recon- recognized. Yeah. And there's a bunch of other tribes that are trying to get recognized. Mm-hmm. Just they all have different languages, different cultures, different. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. I mean, just the the topic that we're talking about on this episode, the decolonizing is really mind-boggling. I mean, it involves history, it involves archaeology, it involves land relations. And then when you get into that, then the natural science starts Mm -hmm. coming back in. And we start wondering, well, how do you decolonize natural science? And what what are we doing as natural scientists to decolonize our research? And, I mean, again, that actually... That reminds me that there's there is another list that I would like to read off really quick here from Linda Smith's book about that specifically about conduct of researchers, and they identified this and it's more specific to Maori values and Maori researchers in their cultural terms, but they mean a lot to me too. Mm-hmm. So n- number one, a respect for people. That's very simple. Yeah. Number two, the scene face that is present yourself that is present yourself to people face to face. I'm not sure I understand that. Uh, present yourself to people face to face, so that they're calling that the scene face. Yeah, well, I mean, so basically, don't don't talk behind people's backs. Maybe that's kind well, of what I'm thinking. I think it's kind of like when you try to present yourself, like to observe an indigenous community without actually interacting with uh, that yeah. indigenous community. It's kind of maybe like uh, like how Neil says we need to we put all our minds on the table. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this other, the number three is look, listen, speak. Mm-hmm. So in that order. So look, listen, then speak. Number four, share and host people. Be generous. Number five, be cautious. Mm-hmm. Number six, do not trample over the mana of people. Uh, mana. I'm not sure what I, I've heard that term, and I know it's really significant for 
Polynesian people because I've heard Hawaiian people talk about it too. Really? I I don't want, I'm not even going to try to define that M A N A, but I know I've heard that and I'm, uh, but I don't want to try to define that. Especially, I don't know what it is referring to, but I know it's important. Um, but yeah, do you, Annie's looking that up real quick. Mana. But I mean, be, be careful with Google, especially with defining indigenous words, because it, I, oftentimes you can find a site from the people and go directly to them to define stuff like yeah. this, but um, that's not always available. I'm going to just grab like a quick little thing. But anyways, that's number six. Do not trample over the mana of people. So that sounds important. It's a supernatural force or power that may be ascribed to a person's spirit or inanimate objects. Okay. So that sounds a lot to me wrong, like yeah. respect. Yeah. Um, and then number seven, this is the last one. It says, don't flaunt your knowledge. And that's especially important to, for scientists. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Always want to flaunt yeah, it. Yeah, those seven, they're very powerful. And well, like usual, we'll link this book, Decolonizing Methodologies, by Linda Smith. We'll link that in the show notes. And this is a super, super awesome book. It, <laughs> uh, it's very comprehensive and it's cited by a lot of scholars now. <laughs> Yeah. As one of the seminal works in this area. And I mean, great. What a great title too. <laughs> Decolonizing Methodologies. And I think she has uh, YouTube talks too as well. If yes. you Google. Um, Linda Smith. Uh, you probably might have better luck with her middle name too. Yeah. Um, Smith is a pretty common name, but I've just done Linda Smith, but my Google might be, yeah, I, it's well, smart, so it might be like, oh, he's yeah, looked this, this up before, yeah. so he must mean this I think Linda if you Smith. do Linda Smith decolonizing, yeah. but I think it yeah, will Yeah, you'll find up. her. Yeah. Uh, her. She's got a cool middle name. Tahiwai? Tahiwai? But it's spelled T-U-H-I-W-A-I. So, if that helps. I highly recommend her talks. She's got some really good ones mm-hmm. on YouTube. Are we ready to start talking about positive, positive oh, yeah. ways to move forward? Well, I think we kind of have been. Yeah, I think I, I mean, think it wasn't as downbeat as we thought it was going to be. <laughs> no, but since we are nearing the end of the show, I think we could definitely specifically talk about some ways forward. And I really want to bring up Margaret Kovacs' book. Again, another book, another... I mean, it's it's hard to talk about these things without grounding it in some literature because <laughs> I'm not only am I so used to doing that, but these are awesome people. I mean, why reinvent the wheel, right? Exactly. Uh, so, and I think that it's it's not necessarily a bad thing to to read. No, <laughs> you know, like let's I know. learn. There's that there's that American <laughs> side of me coming out. I I, I don't want to read because because You're it's not. Nerd. Yeah, I know. I really believed that when I was younger in high school that. I didn't want to be thought of as the smart kid. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so sad. I know that is. I think that's, I don't know if that's changing. I haven't been in high school as a different. I had my tenure, so I've been out for a long time. That reminds me of that show. uh, What's it? uh, 49th Street? No. Um, 21 Jump Street? 21 Jump Street. Yeah. (laughs) That's so sad that I knew what that movie was. (laughs) When they they go back to school and he's all trying to be cool with the one arm back, one one shoulder. He's like, no, no, no one's wearing one shoulder anymore. And oh, then man, they're all dogging idea. on him for his gas <laughs> <Exactly>. mileage. <laughs> oh, that, that movie's oh, funny. Man. And uh, so Linda Smith says, but anyways, there's uh, in this book, Margaret actually, is, she's citing Linda Smith's work when she talks about a critique of the post in post-colonial. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important place to start in a modern kind of pre- uh, present 
term context is that colonialism is still going on Mm -hmm. and decolonization is a process that we are going to be dealing with for a long time. So we need to uh, remove the post from colonialism and be real about it and just acknowledge that colonial nations exist and one Mm -hmm. of them is dominating the planet right now, the United States. And within colonial nations, though, there's a different movement movement. So those colonial nations, they had their decolonization movement, Mm -hmm. but indigenous decolonizing movements are different Mm -hmm. because oftentimes it's within the geopolitical boundaries of a colonial nation. So I think I once heard it as um, indigenous and settler uh, conflicts, Mm -hmm. I I think, as being that was after World War Two. Is that when that was when these indigenous communities started to decolonize more like in um, Southeast Asia and India. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, That was really the Vietnam war Mm -hmm. was kind of the tail end of the Southeast Asian decolonialization Mm -hmm. movement against France and the United States had some, had major interests in the area for a lot of different reasons, Mm -hmm. but really it was a part of the cold war. It was what the Vietnam war was. And it was another attempt at containing the the United States' containment policy for Cold War, trying to contain com- communism. Uh, I might like to have my dad on because he's a Vietnam vet. Yeah, I'm sh- I would be really curious to that see what be. he has to say about um, just these ideas we've been talking about mm-hmm. with decolonizing and what that means to sovereignty yeah. and all sorts of stuff. But in Margaret in Margaret's book, she uh, just after her um, her critique, or she brings up the critique of post colonialism mm-hmm. that it's it's not post at all. Exactly. But she says, it's a whole section titled this, going forward means looking back. And mm-hmm. we've been trying to avoid doing that as much as we can because it's such a deep look Yeah. when it, we do start looking back. And it's sad. You know, like, yeah. I think that especially when you want to deal with historic traumas and and really delving into archives that are very honest and... Mm-hmm portrays United States in a way that necessarily United States doesn't want to be shined upon. And, um, yeah, but you, I, I think you agree. I think that in order to move forward, you do have to kind of reconcile your past. And I think that that's not happening in indigenous communities today. Like it's kind of this idea of you don't want to look back because it's negative, but I think you need to heal yourself first and you mm-hmm. have to do that by like reconciling like your past and, and really then moving forward and how do you how do you move forward after that like how do you actually heal yourself and then move forward and i think it's land yep. it's language it's ceremonies it's harvesting it's food sovereignty you know it, it's all of these little steps that you can take that in the end will heal yourself mhm and it really does come down to like that idea of ex- exposure therapy mm-hmm. With historical trauma, the longer we don't talk about it, the worse it's going to get. Mm-hmm. And until we face it and face it in a really intense way, where it's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. So we really and that there's a lot of strong research in this area of that. That's one of the only ways to really truly heal from trauma is to go and face whatever it was mm-hmm. and face it again and again, kind of like that classic example of like spiders. People are afraid of spiders. Mm-hmm. So go hold the spiders for a couple hours. Uh, yeah. But, but really that, I mean, there's, it's dangerous too, because I guess if left, uh, left uncontrolled or done in a way, uh, I mean, 
it can be like people can lose their lives if if they go into that place where you're exploring such painful topics Mm -hmm. without any kind of guidance Mm -hmm. so definitely go to elders talk to professionals there's people that train i mean they Mm -hmm. are literally trained to do this i don't necessarily advocate like that talking therapy but there's a place for it it's not the answer yeah but it helps. It could help. Well, I think it's just like kind of like finding indigenous teachers. You can find yeah, indigenous therapists. Yeah, they don't have to be a trained like, therapist. Yeah, to like help. you can find people within your own community that can help you. Like my sister is an LCSW. And I think that in the end, it's just a bunch of young people stepping up and doing hard jobs. I have a sister that's a that's a social worker that, that does case studies that are really hard. That, mm-hmm. that, that cases that would probably break any other person, but because we live where we live, it's kind of this normative thing that we need to step away from. Yeah. And, uh, Hmm. so yeah, there's a lot to go with this historical mm -hmm. trauma thing. And I don't think be, I know that I'm a young, young men around here. We, Mm -hmm. we avoid therapy like the plague. I I mean, it's just any kind of emotions. Yeah. Yeah. So I really encourage young men out there to seek therapists, seek counselors. There's a lot of resources, Mm -hmm. And, I mean, not every res has good resources, that's for sure. But, I mean, reach out to people. Mm-hmm. Reach out to people in the community. There's always someone there that can teach you something or that will just listen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's all you need, too, I feel like, is just someone that you can talk to and they just listen. Mm-hmm. No matter and, what it is. Yeah, talking. I know that's a huge part of the decolonizing movement. Mm-hmm. We just got to talk about this stuff. And so I'm glad we talked about it today. We talk about it. Do we have, like, a quick second? How much time do we have? Well, we're over an hour now. Uh, I don't know how long you guys are listening for, but, <laughs> yeah, we're we're on Indian time. So, I mean, yeah, it's getting done when we get done. But I also, there is also a certain, I think Indian time is poorly misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to do it, like, it's got to be done at 101 mm-hmm. and 30 seconds and we have to have it, like, at, at the dot, but... There is a lot of value in showing up on time. That doesn't mean you show up late to everything. Yeah, we're trying. <laughs> Indian time is it gets done when it needs to get done. And yeah. that that involves when. So, I mean, uh, Indian time, we should yeah. t- do an episode on that. That would be a cool episode, the science of Indian time. Yeah. Because I got some pretty strong opinions that I've recently changed because I try to hold my strong opinions very loosely. Um, I just kinda, but anyways, go ahead. Yeah, I just I just know <laughs> that we have some like non-indigenous listen like listeners, and I just mm-hmm. kind of wanted to touch base on what they can do to move forward. And I know a lot of that oh, involves like yeah, indigenous a, research. I wasn't even thinking of that. That's yeah. a great point. Um, so I just I'm quickly gonna read um these suggestions for supporting reconciliation research, and it's from a paper from the Acme. Um, journal for critical geographies. Um, and so what they said is recognize and reconceptualize the Indian problem as a Canadian problem. So this article was based in Canada, but you can look at it as a North American problem, as a South American problem, as, um, we got American problems down here too. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can kind of interchange it. Um, so critically assesses the existing body of knowledge. I think that's what we talked about is looking in the past and kind of understanding archives, um, enable structural, systematic, and institutional changes. Um, respectively, engage with indigenous peoples. Provide a provide for culturally safety, cultural safety universities. Um, 
that they must ensure that the indigenous people are safe is pretty much what they're saying, that, mm-hmm. that the knowledge is, is held within the community. Mm-hmm. And then it's reconciliation in post-secondary institutions, and they call it a call to action. And so it's just kind of really mm-hmm. understanding where, if you want to work in an indigenous community, you need to follow certain steps yeah. within that community. I think definitely previous research didn't look at that ethically. But I think now there's great opportunities for Indigenous allies. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, to give the Europeans credit, we haven't known about this stuff for that long. Yeah. And really, I mean, if you think about it, it was it was back in the 50s that they first started figuring out that we were polluting the oceans. Mm-hmm. How I mean, I think it's asking a lot to for to expect society to have changed completely yeah. in just a gen- couple of generations. I mean, how long is it how long do people how long do we really expect that it's going to take for us to learn? I mean, even even with human rights. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen until the 50s either. The Belmont report, what was that 1957 or 67, 69. I don't know. There's this report called the Belmont report and it's it's what where like into uh, uh internal review boards come from and why mm, yeah. why you, researchers can't just go and do experiments <laughs> on people anymore and uh, that all came out of like uh, mm-hmm. the Nuremberg trials after World War II and stuff mm-hmm. so and I mean yeah that was coming on 70 years ago but that's only 70 years right how could we expect society to have changed that rapidly well that's like grandparents especially when age. we have so many people right yeah like that I mean I think that when you look at uh, segregation you look at all this stuff in indigenous um the what religious freedom act mm-hmm. 17 and 18 1978 oh my gosh i butchered that oh yeah that's close <laughs> you know like that wasn't that long ago that was my parents age grandparents age that's still within the seven generations mm-hmm. like you can 1900s is still yeah. Even like late 1800s is probably still seventh generation when we think yeah, about it. Yeah, my great grandma, I grew up, so my great grandma died a while ago, but I grew up with my great grandma all the way until my, mm-hmm. uh, I think I was 19, 18. But she was born in 1903. Yes. So you That's hear like, these stories and it's from people who have and lived. She rode there. in covered wagons. Yeah. And it's insane. Yeah. So I guess what I, the, why I brought that up is. <laughs> Let's give each other a little bit of a break. Yeah. I mean, Europeans, yeah, they had some pretty cool technology. They Mm -hmm. had some crazy guns and all sorts of different things that they developed to allow them to dominate other peoples. But that doesn't necessarily mean they were all bad. Yeah. It was really a system that came over and people brought this system. And the system had all sorts of things attached to it. Now the people are suffering from that system. Mm-hmm. And it's not just native people. And like Annie said, I mean, we're all in this together, really. Mm-hmm. And we're all going to have to decolonize together. Yep. So I guess, yeah, we could give each other a break and realize that we're all human and we're all pitiful in that way. <laughs> and we're all doing, most people really are just doing their best. Yeah. And sometimes people's best really sucks. So I know I'm trying to give myself a break for that. Yeah. Almost constantly. <laughs> Um, I, I tend to be hard on myself sometimes. But. Anyways, with that being said. What are we thankful for this week? Yeah, I'm thankful for. <laughs> it's been a long week. Mm, yeah, indeed it has. Uh, yeah, I, I'm still grateful for my kids. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm, I'm great. I guess just kids in general. I feel like I've learned more about how to be a grown up from kids than I ever did from my mom or my dad. <laughs> Even though they taught me things like responsibility and work ethic and other things, how to be a grown up, how to be a man or an adult, I've learned a lot more from engaging with kids mm-hmm. than I ever did from an adult. But also, I didn't really have many male role models growing up, so I kind of had to become my own or find my own um, in books or movies or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, that, like my uncle Steve dying last year was really heavy for me because he was one of the only role models I had grown up. And to see him fall to alcoholism mm-hmm. and then eventually uh, die of from cirrhosis was just, that fucked me up. Yeah. But anyways, I'm grateful for kids because they really have brought so much value to my life. And every time I'm around them, I, um, I, it almost never fails. They get mm-hmm. me smiling. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm in a really bad mood and I'm, I'm purposely trying to be angry, right. which is rare. But you can. they, uh, yeah, they get me smiling. They get me laughing <laughs> every time. Oh, yeah. I can. I, I probably would agree. I think kids are my niece and nephew are on the wall right now in the room we're recording. Um. It'll probably family because it's been a it's been a long week and I just helped my aunt move and yeah your dad just had a birthday too right yeah my dad had a birthday so seventy three years yeah yeah so probably my I guess my dad let's just let's just say I'm thankful for my dad because mm, I think good. that he yeah. he raised me when I was in high school because my mom had a great opportunity to to run the Department of Public Health and Human Services for the state of Montana in it but she had to work in Helena so she would come back for the weekends but during the school during the school week it was my dad and. My dad's like this stoic native type that, you know, definitely oh, yeah. probably kicked my butt. <laughs> and uh, uh, so him, I, I, I know for sure that if it wasn't, I'm, I was very unlike you. I, I had an extremely amazing father figure that has supported me in all of my little fancy endeavors that I want to do. He drove mm-hmm. me four days to New York the first time. Um, so without him and his kind of wisdom that he brings my sisters and my family that, uh, he's been 30 plus years sober. Mm-hmm. He's a Vietnam vet, worked for the tribe for so long that, I don't know, he, he's definitely, um, I can't, I can't say enough about how great I think my dad is. I won't ramble on anymore. So happy birthday to my dad. So what and... you're saying is you're a daddy's girl, right? A hundred percent. Okay. Just to clarify. I'm, I'm not even yeah. going to deny it. And well, I'm knows. a mama's boy, so, <laughs> so it's all good. <laughs> we love our parents. We balance the equation. Cool. Well, thanks for turning, tuning in, everybody. Yeah. We'll catch you next time on the Indian Science Show. Boop, boop. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to download the podcast, you can find us at any of the main platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and definitely leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps a ton. And it also helps us understand what people would like to hear more of. So we definitely appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And you can also find us at our WordPress page and also on social media, right? Yep, we are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at Indian Science Show, so NDN Science Show, where you can let us know how we're doing, or if you have an idea for the show, yeah, let us know. Yeah, and we'll put out announcements for our releases, as well as some other content we're working on trying to 
get some videos as well as mm -hmm. do other different things. So you can find out about all that on those places, the social media. But we also have a WordPress page. And just like Annie said, it's at NDN Science Show. And the spelling of it is N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W.wordpress.com. That's IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll catch you on the flip side.